This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Brian Scudamore is the founder and CEO of O2E Brands, a company with four successful home service brands under that banner, including 1-800-GOT-JUNK, WOW One Day Painting, You Move Me, and Shake Shine. He's the author of WTF, Willing to Fail, How Failure Can Be Your Key to Success. It's a wonderful book. Brian learned the ins and outs of business by running his own. He's learned that creating the right culture at work, valuing your employees, and treating your customers well is critical to achieving business results, and that great ideas, important, not enough. Brian and I talk about the value of having a vision, a painted picture, as he calls it, of the future, about his successes and his failures, and about the lessons he's learned on the importance of people at work, and most of all, on how crucial it is to learn from one's experiences, especially failures, by actively, intentionally reflecting on what happened and why it happened as it did. The not-so-secret ingredient in Brian's philosophy is just that. Learning doesn't happen by magic. It occurs as a result of taking the time to look back and discover insights you can use in the future. Brian shares some compelling, instructive examples of how he's done this in his life, starting when he was a child, and how the willingness to fail, WTF, the very celebration of failure, is part of his approach not only to leading his businesses, but also to parenting his three children. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, please subscribe. Tell your friends to do so. And if you've not yet done so, before you forget, rate it on iTunes so others are more likely to find and enjoy it as well. Now, get set to listen to and learn from a world-class, humble entrepreneur. It's Brian Scudamore. Brian Scudamore, welcome to Work and Life. Stu, thanks for having me, and uh, glad you have as much fun saying WTF as I do. <laughs> uh, I absolutely believe that we learn more from our failures than we do our successes, as painful as those uh, might be. Yes, and of course we all experience them, don't we, Brian? We sure do, and you know every failure. When I, it's funny when I was writing the book, mm-hmm. my co-author Roy Williams, who does all our radio creative, said, "Stop worrying about the title of the book. We'll figure out the title once the book manuscript has been written." Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he was right. WTF popped out at me because I realized, wow, I keep talking about all the failures that precipitate all the lessons learned and the big mm-hmm. milestones and events in my business and my life. Mm-hmm why not call it WTF and teach people or inspire people that 
you should have a willingness to fail. Yes, it's hard though. And and that's one of the things I want to talk about because I know that some of our listeners uh, think about making change to create greater harmony and better performance among and in the different parts of their lives at work, at home, in the community for themselves personally, but they're afraid. You know, they're afraid to commit to something big. They don't have that painted picture, which we're going to talk about that you that you vividly describe as a source of inspiration and motivation. Um, and so, I want to I want to really explore that with you and what you've learned about helping to motivate and inspire people around you and in your organization to to take those risks. But let's let's first paint a picture, if we will, of the the current state. What is the uh, the current state of your organization? What is the 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 scope and uh, purpose of what you are doing now? And then I want to go back to the beginning. But first, give us a sketch of sure. what you're up to these days. Yeah, let me start with why, as Simon Sinek would say, he was on our board for years. And the why, the purpose behind what we're doing is inspiring entrepreneurship, getting people to live great lives mm-hmm. by starting a business. Many people aren't happy with their current job and they've dreamt for years of starting their own business. We give people a platform. M- many people think, you know, I don't have the idea. I don't know what to start. And mm-hmm. Someone will come to us and say, Shackshine, windows wash- window washing, power washing, gutter cleaning. I've never dreamt of that, but I've dreamt of having my own business. If you're giving me a proven recipe on how to be successful, mm-hmm. that might sound appealing. So what we're doing is we are changing lives, and we don't just say that. We hear that from our franchise partners uh, each and every day. People have come in with our platform and, and built a great business. And you know what drives me, my why, is building something bigger and better together versus something any one of us would have chosen to build alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so current state, we're, yeah. we'll finish this year over $400 million in revenue. Um, it's, it's so fun to build a home home service empire, not just in 1-800-GOT-JUNK, our first baby, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but in our other brands, we're trying to conquer all things home services where we can create very exceptional experiences in ordinary mom and pop type industries. And the, the markets that you serve include what's, what's the scope of your operation? I was born in the United States in San Francisco. I currently live in Canada. Uh, my office is in Canada, but we are throughout Canada, the United States, and Australia. Australia. We are. We are. You know, we expanded somewhere where we thought, okay, they've got to speak our language, uh, English, and where in the world can we expand to? We tried the UK with 1-800-GOT-JUNK and failed miserably. Oh, yeah? At the same time same time we also try tried uh, Australia and succeeded uh, brilliantly so no you know, you're probably gonna you're probably gonna ask me why did we fail in the UK well did it have something to do with uh, a guy named Mike it did not you know what Mike. I'm referring to in metal Mickey oh yeah yeah right so <laughs> in my book no it had nothing to do with that I mean it's funny you know I, I used to wear braces as a kid and mm-hmm. I was living in England and and everybody looked at me, and, and they weren't used to braces in the U.K. at that point. And they used to call me Metal Nicky, which was a name of uh, uh, a, a, a character from some show that they just thought, you know, hey, I got a mouthful of metal. Why not call me Metal Mickey? And then, yeah, there was a guy, Mike, who called me that. I didn't like it and tried to stand up as, uh, you know, a newcomer to the school and show that I could handle my own. and mm-hmm. Popped him one in the, the face and sort of realized that probably wasn't the right way to do things. And uh 
learned a, a tough lesson that it's it's not worth uh, using violence as a way to solve solutions and uh, that's for sure know, never ever never hit anyone again. But um, <laughs> no, we failed in the UK not because of any childhood trauma I might have had uh, as a kid, but we failed simply because. Uh-huh. We didn't have the right person. We had the right guy in Australia. Hmm. We had the wrong person in the UK. And by the time we realized things were really failing, it was easier to shut it down and focus on Australia uh, versus sort of relaunch in that market. Thank you for that uh, introduction and overview. And Again, I want to go back to the beginning because the way you recount your origin story, I I think, is very instructive for people. But um, one more note about where you are now and where you hope to be. So, if I were to, if I were to be speaking with you five years from now, what what would you be telling me about what what your organization is up to if you if your dreams come true? Yeah, well, from a measurable level, I would say we'd be well over a billion in revenue now. It sounds strange sometimes for me to quote numbers because I'm not a money-motivated person. I like the the yardstick, the measuring stick of what money uh, sort of shows we've created in terms of the lives we've changed, Mm -hmm. in terms of not just our franchise owners, but our people internally, the number of jobs we're creating, the customers that we're wowing and, and giving exceptional experiences to. So to me, the billion is just you know, two and a half times bigger than where we are now, which is mm-hmm. exciting. Mm-hmm. But where will we be in five years? I think we'll continue to be looked at as a a globally admired brand that started small, that's creating waves in terms of customer experience, that's really showing businesses that you can take a dirty industry like junk removal and completely professionalize it, mm-hmm. create what we call the FedEx of junk removal. That was the early day vision. Or you can take wow one day painting where we go in and instead of painting someone's home over two weeks, which is pretty typical, we're doing it in a day. No compromising the quality or the the uh, level of work that's done, but instead speeding up the time frame by putting the right number of people mm-hmm. in the home. And that's why we call it wow one day painting. So five years from now, it's continuing to revolutionize the customer experience in very ordinary industries. Mm-hmm. Well, but to an extraordinary degree, right? Uh, it, it, I, I understand what you mean by ordinary industries, but these are uh, these are uh, ways of approaching how to how to serve uh, your customers that are that are new, uh, that are innovative, and that have attracted uh, potential buyers. I was I was very amused uh, by your um, description of the conversation that you had with waste management uh, out on a boat somewhere. Can you just tell us briefly about that? And because it relates to your 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 interest in, in growth and wanting to you know keep the reins. Yeah, so I've always been someone that I, I love watching things grow and get bigger and better through a great team of people. And to sell a company, to take it public and raise money, you know, and exit, those aren't things that appeal to me because I feel that I've got a creative job to do, creating jobs, changing lives, helping to build great brands. And so there was a day where Waste Management, the largest garbage company in the world, they approached me, they wined and dined me, and we had a great time. They took me to a fishing resort in Canada, which was just beautiful. And we went out on a boat, and there were two executives, and they're from the garbage industry. It might conjure up uh, images of the Sopranos. We're out in the middle of the ocean okay. fishing, fishing together, and they say, 
so uh, you really want to sell us your company, don't you? And I said, no, I don't. And they started talking big evaluations, big valuations at the time when I was a very small business. Yes. And they were talking $75 million to $100 million. And I said, guys, you could offer me a billion dollars, something ridiculous. And I would still say no because I really love what I'm doing. Money can't buy my happiness. Hmm. And I'm not done yet. I'm just getting started. And so, you know, I said no to them, and fortunately, they kept me on the boat. And uh, at the end of the day... But you were scared, Brian. You know what? I I was intimidated because I was a lot younger. Uh They were senior executives. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't think they were really going to toss me overboard, but it's hard to to say no to someone that's offering you $100 million. But when you know what drives you, when you know that helping people with a business opportunity that they might not have ever seen in front of them and watching the growth and success that people have and how lives are changed, I wanted to be the guy leading that. I wanted to mm-hmm. be a part of that, and I didn't want to trust that into anyone else's hands. Not yet, anyway. I know that listeners are going, are going to be interested in learning more about uh, what it is that you're doing now and how you create a culture that really does help to drive success and change people's lives. And, but before we get to that, let's let's go back to the beginning. Um, you start the book by saying, "I got a dad at seven, or if I'm quoting correctly. How did your not having a father in your early years uh, in your life? How did that shape how you kind of experienced your your quest for um, for success in your business life as you got into your late teens? I, I, I don't know if there was a difference. I mean, I, I had and still have the most amazing mom in the world. And, you know, she was always supportive of my dreams mm-hmm. and my big ideas, everything I dreamt of. And I was always a dreamer. She would tell me, you, you can do that. She would mm-hmm. encourage me. She gave me love and enthusiasm. And so by not having a dad, well, maybe I just didn't have two parents around to to get the contrast of uh, of how they were different. But I don't know if it took anything away, and I think it, mm-hmm. it helped me understand that, you know, love is everything. You've got a, a loving, supportive mom who encourages your dreams. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be that guy that, and still want to be and try to be, the guy encouraging others. Mm-hmm. And I think the mark it's left on me is I believe anyone can do anything they set their mind to. And so in mm-hmm. our business, we'll have people come in with lofty goals and, and they just say, you know, I'm here because you believe, Brian, or I'm here because the, the, this company believes. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll allow people to take risks. We know that some people will fail, but we also encourage failure, as the book uh, talks about. Mm-hmm. We want people to fail. We don't want them to repeat their mistakes, but we want them to know it's okay to fail. And one of the things you asked me is, you know, failure is hard, and, and how do people get okay with it? You know, every time I make a mistake, every time something really difficult happens that I'm not happy with, I take out a sheet of paper, and I force myself, when I'm ready, it might not be that day, it might be weeks later, but mm-hmm. it's taking out a sheet of paper and writing down the answer to this question. What's one positive thing, one seemingly better thing that can happen from this failure? And I've never been let down. I'll, I'll come up with things that I'll, you know, they'll blow my mind sometimes. And I'll think, wow, you know, this, the fact that I fired all my employees, all 11 of them, 
Mm -hmm. What a terrible thing. And I'm almost losing my business. Um, You know, and that truly happened five years into the business. Mm -hmm. I sat down and realized that that was a gift and it made the culture, the foundation of the culture I wanted to create, but didn't yet have possible. Can you give us a a more recent example where something went wrong, where you felt it was a failure and that you gleaned some valuable nugget of wisdom that you could use going forward? Yeah, so something a little more uh, recent was, you know, back to the people side of the business. I had recruited the wrong uh, president and COO for my business. This was eight years ago, um, and it's something we still talk about frequently because I realized the gift of having the right person today and and every day. And what happened was I brought in an ex-president from from Starbucks, from their U.S. operations. Mm -hmm. They came into my little business, and I thought, man, I've hit the jackpot. I found the right person. I did not spend the time really getting to know and onboard this person in the way that I should have, Mm -hmm. and that was a big failure. And uh, 14 months later, we had to part ways. We almost bankrupted my business that I'd been working to build for 20 years with a ton of heart and passion and um, almost had to walk from my own business, not just letting this person go, but it almost meant the end for me. Hmm. However, the gift, the learning was me reflecting and understanding my role and how I did not bring the right person in and didn't spend enough, enough time onboarding them. And I started to search for who would this right person be? and really did some soul searching. And uh, that led me to finding Eric Church. Now, Eric Church is our president and COO today. He's been with us for eight years. What I identified in him that he didn't actually realize uh, until I brought it up was he has always worked for a founder. He's always been the person supporting Mm -hmm. uh, someone who started the business. So he knew how to do that, felt comfortable in that role. Yeah, and so I needed that Mm -hmm. with me because the ex-Starbucks exec had always worked with corporate people and had never supported founders. And founders can be a little ADD and disfocused and a little quirky. And um, he understood me. Mm -hmm. And together we're creating magic. The business has quadrupled uh, under his leadership. And uh, we've added brands. We've added great people and leaders. And um, he can develop people. Uh, in a way that I never could, and the, so well, one of the things that I the right match found for, is, and that you learned from that. What one of the things I want to underscore in what you just described in that wonderful example mm-hmm. is that you were not afraid to look at the experience and and to try to uncover what you could have done differently or what you missed, uh, and that that's what opened up the possibility for you to create some new knowledge from that. That that the the lessons of experience don't happen by magic. They happen by your being committed to reflecting on your experience, uh, and because it's only by doing so that you can discover what what went wrong that you can try to fix in the future. Do I have that right? You absolutely have that right. I think what what happens is most people they fail, they feel bad, they deal with their mistakes in a in a painful way versus going, okay, thank you, I failed. What's the gift here? Pull mm. out that sheet of paper and write out the the best possible outcome that can come from that failure. I mean, I, I honestly believe, and I say this all the time, that failure is a gift. I think you can't find anyone out there that's been successful in any way of life, you know, whether they're a political leader, religious leader, uh, an entertainer, uh, an athlete, 
the ones who we see in the world as being uber successful, mm-hmm. they'll look at their failures. I of mean, course. Michael Jordan as, a, as an example that comes to mind. I mean, here's a guy that gets cut from his high school basketball team, mm-hmm. yet ends up becoming one of the greatest ball players of all time because of the fact that he learned from that mistake and ended up working harder and smarter. Absolutely. Powerful. And, and, and that's, that's, it's not an easy thing to do because failure is painful. It really hurts. It can, and it can damage your, your sense of, uh, you know, self-esteem and your confidence and your belief in your future. Uh, so it does require a considerable degree of discipline and courage to be able to look at an experience and say, uh, I failed. This hurts. People probably look at me differently now. Uh, you know, maybe my kids are thinking of me in a different way that they know about this failure. If it's a public one, my spouse, uh, my friends, uh, to to find this to find the will to persist in the face of failure, it's a hard thing to do. So, how do you help people around you when they fail to to have the strength to do the work of learning? So the same thing that I do, where I take out a sheet of paper. If I'm someone coaching or helping someone reflect, if you just had a big failure in your life, I'd say, "So, Stu, let's let's pull out a whiteboard or a piece of paper." I want you to take a few minutes in a quiet space, and I want you just to brainstorm and and uh, yeah. But I just want to get drunk. This sucks. Yeah. Well, then <laughs> then then have a drink and and write down. You know, when you're ready, what are at least three things that could possibly happen that will be better as a result of your failure? Mm-hmm. I mean, the hardest part. You know, you mentioned it takes courage. Yeah, it takes courage. But I think it takes something even easier, which is just sitting down for a second and reflecting mm-hmm. and just thinking and having an open mind to possibility mm-hmm. and asking yourself like, okay, hold on, something can happen. I mean, I ended up, uh, I read an article once that struck me that Oprah wrote, always been a big Oprah fan. And uh, she wrote an article that covered cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. And in this article, it said that every single one of the cancer survivors she interviewed said that they would not, if they could turn back the clock, have, uh, have not had cancer. She said they, they all actually realized that their lives became better and more enriched. Now, I, I get that it's a serious thing and many people don't survive it. But these survivors realized that they wouldn't change um, the past, that they mm-hmm. had had more beautiful lives and that they, they somehow needed that difficult time in their life. Mm-hmm. And so if you take it to maybe a less serious thing, like something going wrong in your business, mm-hmm. you know, anyone that's in business has, has had to, has, has hired the wrong people, has fired people, has had people steal from them, has had all sorts of issues. Mm-hmm. But every time if you sit down with that people challenge and you say, you know, what's going to help me learn, what, what can I learn from this that will help me find the right person the next time around? What role did I play in recruiting the wrong person. So again, the Starbucks executive, I fell in love with a resume. I fell in love with the fact that, man, this person had 30,000 employees underneath them at Starbucks, a brand I love. I shouldn't have made my decision. He must know a lot more Uh, about this stuff than I do. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I just, you know, it was one of those things where I felt like, why did I make a decision based on, Mm. on just heart? 
why didn't I actually put some some head into it and think, well, hold on, let me question these things. Mm-hmm. Um, is this person the right person for me, and how will I know? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you took responsibility for the choices that you made. The problem that so many people have, of course, is that they externalize the blame. They put it outside of themselves. Well, I, I'm, you know, I'm good. I, I'm, I certainly have a good eye for people. You might have said, Brian, in that in that circumstance, that guy was just, you know, he was a failure, and so good. Glad I got rid of him. Next, and you wouldn't have learned so much from from thinking of it that way. You took a different tack, and that's what you're that's what you're espousing here in, in your book is. You got to assume responsibility for what you did to make a problem occur, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's you know that's why I love the example of athletes. You know, when you're playing a sport, especially if it, if it isn't a team sport, if you're a skier and you're in a ski race and something happens, you can't externalize. You got yourself to blame, mm-hmm. but you have to have then back to your point of courage, the courage to sit down and go, hold on, let me look in the mirror here for a second and ask myself, what was my role? What was my part? Now, when someone first falls down and fails, it might not be the right time to reflect. Like you said, you know, you're going, hey, I just want to go out and get drunk. You know what? Maybe that's the right thing to do. But three days, five days, a week later, when you're ready to tackle it and do the work, do the reflection, that's when I think it's important to do so. So, you know, if, if I think of another example, there was a time in about 1996 or 97 when I was looking at franchising my business. I'd always been a fan of what Ray Kroc did with McDonald's, gave people a platform on, on which to build business success. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I think I might want to franchise the company of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And so I start going out to franchise experts. VPs from McDonald's, people that were franchise consultants, all sorts of people. And I started telling them my vision of what I wanted to franchise. And every single one of near a dozen people said, no, it can't be franchised. You cannot franchise junk removal. It's not possible. And so here was a a potential failure that I could have had had I not listened, had I not taken great notes and listened to these experts that I sought out. So what I did is I made all these notes and then I started to tweak the model in my mind because what I ended up asking every one of these people who said, no, it can't be done. I said, why not? What's missing? What would make it possible? Mm -hmm. And I wrote down these answers and tweaked the model, did things like add a call center so we could do the booking and dispatch and build a national brand, something we'd have leverage with uh, in terms of uh, growing something that people would want to mm-hmm. be a part of a franchise organization. Mm-hmm. And the tweaks that I made all came out of a result of me pushing these experts and asking questions. And when I went back subsequently to a couple of them and said, here's my new vision. I've heard what you said. Now what do you think? And uh, these people said, actually, you've done some good work here. I think it might be possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we are today having built a you know, near $400 million business from just 1-800-GOT-JUNK alone because I avoided a failure by asking questions of experts. Yeah, and and the way that I I think about your whole philosophy and approach uh, that is uh, so important to underscore for listeners is that you are an avid learner. Uh, You haven't called yourself that, but that's what I see as as I look at your story. That you're someone who's who's continually seeking new knowledge about what can make the world a little bit better. 
in ways that you care about by being mm. unafraid to ask the questions about you know the ugly things <laughs> that have gone mm-hmm. wrong and and trying to seek out ideas from people who can tell you when you're just missing it and how stupid you are. Uh, and that's that's such an important skill. But many people are afraid to do that because they don't want to hear things that might uh, be inconsistent with their self-image as a smart, competent person. So what do you do to help people around you to be more open and avid learners as you are? Well, my philosophy is you never want to be the smartest person in the room. If you are, you're in the wrong room. And so I'm always seeking out rooms that are filled with much, much smarter people. I hired a COO who's much smarter at how to build a business than I am. Uh, And I I believe that if your ego will allow you and you Ah. get over that hump. Ah, okay. Yes, please continue. If your ego will allow you, bring in smarter people as you want to build your business. But, so, but what if your ego is fragile and it's difficult for you to do that? Well, then you got to get over it. You mm. got to say, do I really want to learn? I mean, you referred to me as an avid learner. I, I would did. say someone who thinks they know it all um, doesn't really isn't really ready to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's where you've got to go. Okay, ego, step aside. I want to learn. Mm-hmm. And. It might easier said than done. Yes. But again, this is a looking in the mirror exercise to say, do I really want to learn or not? So, you know, even, you know, a story from my childhood, I've gone to 14 schools from kindergarten through to college. Whoa. The only diploma I have is kindergarten because I failed out of high school, talked my way into college, quit college because I was building my business. Now, while that makes me seem like someone who doesn't like to learn, I realized that the learning environment of school, sitting still for an hour on end, each class to class to class, didn't work for me. So I decided to do something about it. I dropped out and I changed where I learned and how I learned. As someone who's very ADD, I learn by asking questions, by meeting with others, by Mm -hmm. finding mentors. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you can take your ego and say, hey, I'm, I'm smarter, I'm not. Find what works best for you and go learn in that method. Yeah, which again requires a depth of insight that uh, you don't get on your own, right? You had a lot of support along the way, and and another important theme of your work and your philosophy, as I read it, is is in the importance of asking for help, Uh, asking the universe for what you need, I think is how you put it once. Uh, Talk, if you can, about what you've discovered about how important it is to get help from other people. Well, you know, I, I love shortcuts. I love knowing that I joined an organization called EO, the Entrepreneur Organization. And at first, when I joined in 96 at 26 years old, I had a hard time again because of ego, that bad three-letter word. And I was comparing myself to others. I was looking around and saying, hey, there's people who have built bigger, better, more glamorous businesses than I could ever build. Mm-hmm. And I felt down and out over that. But then what I started to do is I said, well, hold on here a second. These people have all figured out something I haven't because they have bigger, better businesses. What can I learn from them? So every time I would face a challenge in my business, I'd reach out through the 5,000 members of EO and I'd say, has anyone solved this problem? Mm -hmm. And there was always someone that had solved the same problem I was facing. 
And uh, by reaching out and asking for help and putting my ego aside, someone would give me a shortcut. Mm-hmm. They'd say, oh, Brian, I, I've had the same problem with, uh, with my business. Here's how I solved it. How can I help you? Mm-hmm. And you end up finding these friends and mentors who, human nature, we, we love to help others. Some of we us. Love being seen. Yeah, we love being seen as an expert, though. I think, you know, when people yes. reach out and say, hey, you're an expert in this, could you please help? People often want to help. Yes. And why not take a shortcut versus, as I talk about in my book, um, you know, you go to the school of hard knocks, you want to solve some stuff and share that with others so they don't have to go about solving the same difficult problems the hard way. Yes, indeed. Uh, and, and I want to turn to that now as, as one of your uh, missions, really, with this book and with your work is to to change lives. You, you've said that repeatedly. In what ways are you changing lives? And not just in a business sense, but in the perspective of a person's whole life. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, that whole changing lives thing, it's not a marketing slogan. It's not something I created. It's something that I uncovered from conversations with our franchise partners. So recently, many of them started saying, hey, Brian, you've changed my life. Now, I can't take credit for it. Maybe I came up with a business idea that they bought into. But we're hearing this over and over where people are saying, you changed my life. So somebody who always dreamt of running their own business. I was chatting with a guy, uh, Bill, in Providence, Rhode Island, who started a 1-800-GOT-JUNK franchise 17 years ago and just sold it for a fortune. And he said to me, listen, um, the reason I, I started this business is because I'd always dreamt of running my own business. I didn't know how to find the right idea or the right opportunity. I read an article about what you were doing with 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and I felt like, hey, I can do that. I can follow systems and processes, a proven recipe that someone has mm-hmm. in a franchise organization. And off he went to build it. Mm-hmm. Um, we get other examples of... Hang on one second. Okay. So how how sure. did that change his life, would you say? I mean, you obviously don't know his entire story, but what what is it that gives you a sense of gratification and, and uh, pleasure in having you know altered the, the trajectory of this person's existence? Yeah, so what Bill would say to me is, or had said to me, is that he was working at CVS, a massive pharmacy, and had a corporate job that he was in for 21 years, and he wasn't really happy. He wasn't taking ownership Mm -hmm. for his own career and what he was building. And so being his own boss, even if that meant in the early days working harder, he got to work smarter and got to the point where he built up a team of people and he was making an impact on their lives. And then he started spending three days a week on the golf course, and he started traveling more and spending time. uh, He moved to Cape Cod with him and his wife as the kids moved out of the house. And he was afforded opportunity that he, you know, both financially mm-hmm. and with the time and availability in the schedule that he wouldn't have had hadn't he started his own business. Let's turn to, to your whole life, if we can, Brian. How does all this fit in the larger complex of who you are beyond O2E Brands? Well, you know, I think if I look at my life, I think that, you know, beyond my three kids, beyond family, nothing drives me more in this world than watching things grow, watching people grow and develop from an opportunity where someone's working in our call center to one day running, you know, the entire brand or somebody getting out there and starting a business and realizing the financial and the the lifestyle freedom that they that they now have. 
it's become this culture of, uh, of friends and, and almost business family working together. And we've built this special place where I, I just feel so proud that I've gotten to play such a, a even just a small part in this whole scheme of building out um, great businesses and, and making a difference in consumers' lives. So, you know, how does it play out? in the whole scheme of things. And I've never been one to want to sell the company, take it public, raise a bunch of money. I just love what I do each and every day. And Mm -hmm. every day I show up at the office, I'm so happy to be here, even when things go wrong, as you can imagine, because those failures are gifts. But I really, really am just driven by us building something bigger and better together. How old are your kids these days? Uh, from, uh, low teens down to, uh, eight years old. So okay. you know, I've got a young enough family that, um, how does that, what they will do in life. Yeah. How does that figure into your, your day to day, your, your commitments as a, as a parent, as a spouse, et cetera? How, how do you make that piece of the puzzle fit? Yeah, I think it's always about a balance and, uh, you know, I believe in working hard and playing hard. And so I see my role as a parent as, uh, being there when my, when my children need me. And, um, you know, I, I really, uh, I try not to travel as much as some CEOs. Now I've got a great team of people here and I'm fortunate that we've built a, a big enough business that there's people out that can specialize in some of those roles that I might not want to do nor be good at, mm-hmm. but it allows me to have more time to, to be a family man and to, you know, not just be uh, a business person, but someone that can be there uh, for my kids at the same time. I, I certainly don't want to miss them growing up. Are there lessons that you've learned from failures as a father that, that have informed who you are as a business leader? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, for me, I talk about failure with my kids and I mm-hmm. remind them in, in certain situations that, you know, failure is a part of the journey and, and be okay with it. So a real life example, my, um, my daughter, my oldest daughter ski races, and she's become very good at it. And I remember when she first started actually last year, she started at the later age. I remember saying her, to her, what's the worst that can happen here? You're trying something new. You're trying ski racing. If you fail out of the club and off of your ski team, who cares? Like, you, you know, have fun along the way. You know, my, my middle daughter, I remember we were out skiing and she, she goes, I just don't like this. It's not for me. I keep falling. And I'm like, you keep falling. That's awesome. And so the next day she actually came up to me at the end of the ski day after her ski school. And she goes, guess what? I fell today with a big smile on her face. <laughs> and it showed that my, my lesson uh, sunk in with her. I said, you know, you were going to fall, and then you think about why you fell, what you would have ah, done differently, and how it makes you a better skier. Yes, so, reflection. My kids to reflect exactly. Nice. So, so there, there is an example of how you're an exemplary parent. I would say, Brian, I was asking for something that might be a little more difficult to talk about, and that is where you see yourself having learned from a failure experience in your role as a parent. Are you able to muster one of those to share with us? Where I've learned and I failed with my kids? Yeah, like, well, where you yeah. failed somehow and then looked at that and said, oh, wow, here's what I've learned from that, you know, for whatever it was. Yeah, I'm no, I'm no perfect parent by any means, and I, and I know I've failed. I'm trying to think of what comes to mind. I mean, you know, I, I guess what I try and do is when I do make a mistake, if I'm raising my voice or something I'm not proud of, I'll sit there and... And, and try and own that and apologize and mm-hmm. make sure that my kids know that I made a mistake and, mm-hmm. and not being able to, to, to say, you know, I, I did make a mistake. Mm-hmm. 
That's good. I can't think of a I can't think of a recent failure. I can give you my wife's cell number, and you could probably all uh, right. Let's have it. <laughs> can we all have that number so we can all call <laughs> Mrs. Scudamore and say, "Okay, what's Brian done today to mess yeah, up your exactly. life?" Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you you could go as early as this morning, and I'm sure she'd have something. All right. So what's her number? Just kidding. <laughs> Just, okay. No, okay. No, no, okay. no, no. No, but that's. <laughs> I know. That's that's a that's. That's a good one, though. I mean, to just like you know, losing your temper or just not not keeping the measured tones that you'd like to keep with in conversation with your kids, or to you know, to discipline them. You you don't want to start screaming uh, because it doesn't help anybody, generally speaking, right? Uh, and to realize that that was you know uh, a missed opportunity for you to be you know the the contained and measured person that you want to be. Uh, that uh, to admit to that. I think that's everything, isn't it? As a parent to, or as a business leader to say, look, I, I, I screwed up here, and here's why I screwed up, and, and to let people know that you're, that you're fallible. I think two words that business leaders and even parents might not say enough together are, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes courage just to be able to admit you're wrong, and, and it's amazing how much better your employees or I believe your kids can feel when you just, sit down for a second and say, I'm sorry. Don't make a bunch of excuses. Right. Um, you know, we've had to lay people off in the business before and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll often get together with the entire company and say, I'm sorry and, mm-hmm. and take responsibility and, and you work through it. That's the starting point. Now, on this point, something that's been on my mind since we began this conversation that I wanted to get back to, the failure in, in London, or in England, rather, mm-hmm. and with mm-hmm. the Starbucks person. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know how you help them to deal with their failures. My assumption is that there were multiple failures that led to you to conclude that ultimately this is not a good fit. Can mm-hmm. you speak about about those experiences briefly in terms of what you what you helped them to do to work through what ultimately you took responsibility for as a as a bad hire or as a as just you know not being able to fully see how this was you know not going to work. Yeah, so, you know, the Starbucks situation, I, I think that, you know, it was easy for me in the beginning to have reasons in my mind why I blamed that person for mm-hmm. that failure. Mm-hmm. But when I realized even years later that it was me, um, I actually had a conversation with that person and it, and it started with, I'm, I'm sorry. And what's interesting is, you know, how that situation went full circle. That person who was part of the, you know, the Starbucks ex president ended up being on the board of the entrepreneur of the year awards through Ernst and Young uh-huh. one year when I was nominated and I was a finalist and you had to go around and meet oh. the, uh, the judges. And I went up to this person and I'm just thinking, Oh my gosh, I have no chance at this. Cause that person probably <laughs> hates, hates me. my guts. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was interesting is uh, I ended up finding out later when I actually won that award as entrepreneur of the year, that that person had to have voted for me in order for me to be able to win. Hmm. And so to me, that was a bit of, wow, ultimate sort of forgiveness, knowing, you know, I had a, a, my heart filled with gratitude, knowing that, wow, you know, my sorry at one point must have sunk in and made a difference. And not only was I able to for, for uh, sort of reflect and then forgive and move on, but this person was able to as well. So this and, uh, this gets me to yeah, the point that I, I was hoping you could get to before we're done, which and our time is rapidly mm-hmm. uh, rapidly fading. 
how how long can you go with people failing before you have to let them stop failing and and change the relationship? Fire them. Well, it's going to differ circumstance to circumstance, but I think the sooner you can sit down with someone, we have a belief we call race to the conflict. If there's an issue, if you see something that someone else doesn't see, sit down and talk to them. Don't be passive aggressive. Sit down and just say, hey, have you got a minute? Can we talk about something? And point it out. Give them that feedback so that, and, and then allow them to reflect. Here's mm-hmm. what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm thinking. Tell me why I'm thinking and feeling that. Mm-hmm. And so it's addressing things quickly, either with kids or with employees, and, um, and then letting someone work through it and mm-hmm. respond. But I don't think we deal with things quickly enough in this in this world. I think we let things fester, and then that's where it goes on and on and on, and you say, I don't know if I can have this employee be here anymore, and you mm-hmm. fire them, but mm-hmm. did you ever really give them a chance to get better? Uh, one other question before we have to wrap, and that is about the painted picture. Oh, I, I promised we'd get back to that. Can you give us the 30-second version of the, of the power of the painted picture that you have discovered? Yeah, so first I'll say if anyone wants a copy of our painted picture and a story I wrote on how to create one, given that we don't have a lot of time, they can go to all the social media channels at Brian Scudamore on Instagram and send me a note saying painted picture, I'll fire you one off. But the quick short story is yeah. that my parents dock summer cottage, and I was in a doom loop eight years into the business. I envisioned a future for myself in my head. I put it in writing. And when I shared that painted picture with others around me, Mm -hmm. it was like magic. People said, wow, I can either see what you see or I can't. And it divided people into two camps, whether they stayed or left the business. Hmm. But those who saw what I saw in my head now down on writing went, wow, this painting picture, painted picture thing is powerful. And off we went and we made the future of everything I saw happen in the business. You got to have a vision. Got to have a vision. Every successful person that I've ever met or ever read about has had a vision of some sort. What are you hoping listeners take away as the big idea, Brian, from your book, your work, this conversation? Well, two things I'm passionate about. One is having a painted picture, a clear vision of the future of where you're going, not how to get there, but just dreaming big and believing you can get there. And the second thing is knowing that you're going to fail like crazy along the way, but it's how you deal with those failures, Mm -hmm. how you learn, how you reflect, and then how you act from there moving forward that allows you to achieve that big big vision. And you've really exemplified that and articulated it in a, in a way that is very accessible and clear in your wonderful book, WTF, Willing to Fail, which I encourage listeners to pick up. Uh, you'll find a lot of wisdom in it. Brian Scudamore, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Where is the best place for people to learn more about your company, your book, and what you're trying to do to make the world better? I think anywhere on, on uh, Google, just type in Brian Scudamore and you'll find some social handles. You'll find some websites that have to do with our different companies. Go to LinkedIn, wherever you, whatever your, your choice is. But uh, I was honored to be on your program. You've got great questions. And as an author who's written a million books yourself, uh, it really, really is heartfelt that you uh, enjoyed my read. So thank you again. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's Scudamore, S-C-U-D-A-M-O-R-E. Awesome. Brian, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stu.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brian Scudamore and that it sparked your imagination about risk-taking and how to learn from failure. So important. Well, so here's an invitation for you, a challenge. Think back to your latest failure in any part of your life. Could be something really small or something really big. You choose. Now, just take a minute or two or three to ask yourself, this might be difficult, especially if it's fresh, but try. And herein lies the discipline and the value to ask yourself, what's the gift that resides in this painful experience, this failure, that can I would just think about it as a boon and not as a bust. Somehow bring to bear on my life something good from here on out, something I can use that would help me to do what it is I'm here to do with my brief time on this beautiful earth. Let me know what you discover. I would love to hear from you. So you can get in touch with me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for on-air broadcasts of Work and Life on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.